We are in the middle of a series, for those of you who've been kind of tracking with us, uh, middle of a series in Matthew on kingdom ethics, what it means to live right within the kingdom of God and to be a genuine follower of Jesus and uh, really trying to pursue uh, what that looks like in all the shapes and sizes that it comes in and all the variety. And um, last week, if you were here with us, uh, Kevin walked us through this whole idea of what it is we treasure. And uh, so there was discussion, interaction about, uh, are we people that have this earthly mindset or this temporary mindset where we're treasuring things on earth, or is there a perspective that we have that's kingdom-oriented where we're treasuring things that are in heaven, and what really is our orientation? And so uh, if you're here, you'll be reminded of this, that at one point, Kevin was uh, just talking and said, hey, what I'm about to say is going to be a little bit harder. Maybe there's a quote that's going to come that's going to be challenging, and uh, we want to invite conversation. So if at any point you say, hey, you want to email me, we'll sit down for a cup of coffee or whatever, um, to do that, because he would be glad to do it. So this week, I likewise, I'm going to put Kevin's email up there and say, if you don't... (laughs) If there's something you don't like about my talk, feel free to email. Um, make sure we have good conversation. We want to make sure that happens here. But in all seriousness, the reason I put that up there or would put mine, you know, my email, my phone number's in the bulletin, but the reason that I say this right at the beginning again is it's really important for you to hear from us again. That what is set up here does not end the conversation, but rather begins the dialogue. And what is set up here is fully intended to be re-engaged with as we get to groups. So that as we come together as a, a people who, from various groups throughout the city, congregate at this time and in this place, that what we talk about, what we wrestle with in the Scriptures, is only meant to uh, push that back out to where all of us live and move and have our being, as it says in Acts, where we can engage with the text in real life, where we can wrestle with it together. I know this last week, wrestling with our group on the teachings of Jesus related to money, related to treasure, was just so good for us. To ask hard questions, to um, kind of push back on each other, and, and uh, to be open and real uh, was really just a challenging and a good thing. So this morning... Um, I want to start by uh, showing just a couple quick pictures, and as I show these pictures, I want you to, um, uh, to kind of, what, what is it that these pictures are playing with, or what is it that they are uh, distorting, all right? So real quick, we'll scroll through a couple pictures. Now, what, what are these pictures playing with? Perspective, right? They're distorting our perspective. They're playing with the way we kind of look at the world. There's a, a phrase I read a while back that says this, people who look through keyholes are apt to get the idea that most things are keyhole shaped, right? And people who look through keyholes get this idea that most things are keyhole shaped. It's the perspective that you look at something kind of changes everything. It changes the way we view. It's our our angle, our viewpoint, our outlook, the way that we engage whatever it is we are looking at or whatever it is we're thinking about begins to alter the way we think or feel about that particular thing. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Tomorrow, I don't know if you know this, it's not just Halloween. 
But tomorrow is also the day in which we, as a world, hit 7 billion on the population scale. How many of you heard that info? Okay, flash the little website up there. Right now, this is keeping count. I don't know how they keep count of this. I don't know, like, who's recording it or whether it's just on some, you know, system. But supposedly tomorrow at some point, we as a world will hit 7 billion population. You can take that down. What's interesting is it's all perspective. Some of us look at that number around the world. We'd look at that number and go, man, that is so awesome. We are fulfilling the mandate we were given at the beginning, which is be fruitful and multiply. And it's continuing to see its progression. And uh, it's been 12 years since we were at 6 billion. 12 years later, we're at 7 billion. Wondering how soon it'll be before 8 billion. Other people look at that and go, holy crap, we are going to run out of resources quickly. And uh, we're in big trouble, and this isn't good. It's all kind of perspective, the way that you look at it. I uh, read a a while back a uh, person who was talking about organ donation. Here's a little quote on organ donation perspective. Don't think of organ donations as giving up a part of yourself to keep a total stranger alive. It's really a total stranger giving up almost all of themselves to keep a part of you alive. It's all perspective, right? The way we look at something changes based on the angle or the viewpoint we take. Albert Einstein said there's only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is though everything is a miracle. I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of person that has a perspective that's the right perspective, a perspective that really causes me to view the world as if everything is a miracle, that all of it comes from God because it does. Perspective changes things, and all of us have unique perspectives. I remember there was this time in junior high where there was an event that took place in my life that had multiple perspectives from multiple different people. I was uh, in this carpool, and uh, we were going to soccer practice, and a mom picked us up and drove to the next guy's house, and so there was uh, me in the back seat, my friend in the front seat, his mom in the uh, front driver's side, and we pull up to the, the kind of the crest of this hill and we get to our friend's house. He uh, comes running out, jumps in the back seat next to me, buckles up. His mom comes to the front door and is like, oh, you forgot your bag, you forgot your bag. So the mom jumps out of the front, runs to the door to grab it, grabs the bag, and uh, all of a sudden, as we're sitting in the car, the crest of this hill, the car started to move backwards and picked up speed as gravity continued to work its magic. And so I'm in the back seat, and the first thing I do is look behind me, thinking if there's other cars there, we'll be all right, because we'll just smash into the other car. If there aren't other cars there, this could be a long ride. (laughs) So I I look back really quick, and there's nothing, but at the very bottom of the hill is a two-lane road where, you know, cars are coming and going, and I go, oh, man. Where we could be in for. And you know how your mind races. I mean, you've got all kinds of things happening in these split seconds. So my friend and I are in the back seat, buddy's up front, and we're yelling at him like, okay, here's what you need to do. So we're like, hit, jump over and put your foot on the brake. And he's just frozen. I mean, he's standing there, or just sitting there going, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, yank the emergency, do something. Like, we're just, 
So me b- being like the only one who seemed at the moment not frozen, did the very intelligent thing. I unbuckled to uh, figure out how to get to the front and do what needed to be done. And while I was unbuckling, while I started moving toward the front, uh, my friend up front started to panic a little bit. Like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. So what he did is he just grabbed the wheel really quick. So at this point, we're like partway down the hill, we're building steam, we're getting going, and he grabs the wheel and just jerks on it sideways. And all of a sudden, the car just takes this like 90 degree turn, and by the grace of God, it hadn't built up quite enough speed to just flip it or roll it. So all of a sudden, we, we just get jerked, we're tossed, we're going sideways now, across the lanes of traffic, and then we come to an abrupt stop right underneath someone's living room window. Yeah, the back of the car slams into the front of the house. And at that moment, we're sitting there and all kinds of perspectives. One, those of us in the car were like, that was awesome. (laughs) I mean, like, I'm in middle school and I'm going, that was, let's do that again. That was so great. That was so cool. The homeowner, his perspective, a little bit different. Wasn't quite excited about uh, seeing all of his hedges crushed on the way to the front, uh, nor the fact that a car was resting up against his living room. The mom, sprinting down the hill, her perspective was, no one hears about this. Okay? <laughs> Which we're going, no, everyone is going to hear about this, right? I get home, I tell my mom, her perspective, quite different, right? Perspective changes everything. It changes everything. The way we look at something, whatever circumstance, is altered by our perspective or our belief. And perspective has a lot to do with kingdom living as well. That the way, the angle we look at the world usually creates in us a temporary mindset where we look at the earth, we look at what's here, and we live by the reality of this culture. Or... The other perspective is that we have this heavenly mindset, we have this kingdom orientation that changes the way we view everything. So our perspective or our beliefs begin to dictate our actions. So in many ways, the way we live, the things that we do, become an exact representation of what we believe. I know that we don't want to say that usually. We try to shy away from that truth, that the way that you are living, the way that you are acting, the way that I am living and acting are an exact representation of what we believe. The way we view God, the way we view His kingdom, what He calls His followers to do or not to do, all of those things, those perspectives, the way we believe those things dramatically alters our actions. Rollins makes this statement, Our practices do not fall short of our beliefs, but are a concrete, material expression of them. That our actions do not fall short of our beliefs, but are a concrete, material expression of them. What he is saying is very clear. That if you say you believe one thing, and your actions speak differently, then what it is you really believe is what your actions are communicating. So you could say, we could say, that we have a kingdom perspective on our resources, like we talked about last week. But if we find our security, if we find our comfort, if we find our freedom 
if we find our status and everything else in money or in resources, then really, that is communicating where our trust is. That's communicating where our peace is. That's communicating, you get the idea, right? That if we say we have a kingdom orientation on giving, again, we talked about that last week, and yet we pay all the bills first, and if there's something left over, we're generous with it, then we probably have the wrong perspective. When Christ and all of the Old and New Testament communicates that it's the first fruits, it's giving first and then God will supply the needs, that we go, oh, that's the kingdom orientation. A couple weeks back we talked about anger and lust. Again, if we say we have a proper kingdom perspective on sexuality and yet dabble in pornography and are involved in sexual relations outside of marriage, then in reality, what we believe is what we practice. So kingdom ethics is directly linked to kingdom belief or kingdom perspective. So with that in mind today, I want us to look at our passage for this morning, which is on the subject of anxiety or worry. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. What Jesus does in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount is he teaches how faith and anxiety, or faith and worry, are incompatible. That you cannot be a person that is of faith, and at the same time is a person that worries. Okay? Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25-34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to, the, to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither Toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Alright, this passage really is about three major things that I want to look at this morning. It's seeking, motive, and perspective. Seeking, Motive and perspective. The first one is this idea of seeking. Now, seeking is pretty central to the text. And if you look at this main set of verses here in verse uh, 31, it says that this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things 
will be added unto you. What Jesus is saying is this, that, that the Gentiles go about seeking. Those that are not believing in me at present go about seeking such things as what to eat, what to wear, where to live, what to drink, all of the common necessities of life. And he says, but for you, implying don't worry about those things, but for you, seek first the kingdom and righteousness. Seek what it means to live in that reality. See, seeking is really earnestly striving after something, desiring it, wanting it, being passionate about it. And what's interesting is that the more important that particular thing becomes to us that we're seeking, the more that it preoccupies us. I am convinced that we worry about what it is we seek. We worry about what it is we seek. Now, worry varies from society to society, but have you ever noticed that the things that occupy the minds and hearts of the people within that given society tend to be the things that they begin to worry about based on this idea that they're seeking them. So as I desire something and continue to earnestly seek it, as it builds within me, as I want it more and more, it preoccupies me and then it becomes this issue or idea of anxiety. So let me give you a couple examples. Some within the room, perhaps the main thing they're seeking is approval. They've been longing for a while for approval from others. And when we seek approval, what we tend to worry about is what other people think. We worry about what we're wearing at a particular time because of how people might see it. We worry about the relationships we're in. We worry about conversations that we have, all because there's this seeking of approval. If we're seeking wealth, or seeking security in our finances, we begin to worry about income and paychecks, balance sheets, 401ks, whether stuff is growing or stuff is shrinking, whether I have a good savings account and can depend on myself for when the going gets rough, or whether, you see where we're going with this? That when we want or we seek comfort, ease, no worries in life, we tend to be people then that worry about calamity. We worry about sickness or health. We worry about things going wrong. If we want freedom and we seek freedom, we want to be independent of other people, what we do is we begin to worry about having to be dependent on someone else. The things that we seek ultimately lead us toward these places of worry because that's what we're striving after. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're earnestly seeking. So perhaps a question to discuss in group this next week is, what is it that we're seeking? What is it that we're longing for, chasing after? Are we seeking the kingdom and allowing everything else to be added, or are we seeking all the other things and hoping that the kingdom gets tacked on? It moves us to our second word. The second word is motive. Motive. <clears throat> if what we seek is the object of our worry, I'm convinced that control and unbelief are the roots of our worry. So if what we seek, the object, leads to 
or what we're seeking becomes the object of our worry, then it really control and unbelief become the root of our worry. So we'll tackle both of those ideas really quick. The first one is control. What we, we worry about what we seek because we wish to control it. We worry about what we seek because we wish to control it. So let me come back to this idea of approval again. If we're wanting approval, if we're trying to live in the reality of that, desiring it, what we end up doing is seeking to control other people's opinions of us. We seek to control the relationships we have or the relationships we don't have. So let me explain kind of where if, if your idol is approval at some level, this is where it begins to lead. We begin to dictate conversations. We begin to try to remain the center of the conversation. Why? Because we want to control the conversation. Because in, by controlling the conversation, we control people's opinions, and by controlling people's opinions, we gain the approval that we're seeking. So we worry about those conversations and whether we can somehow stay at the center. Here's another example. We begin to disparage others to alter people's perception of them or people's perception of us. We're again trying to control our opinions. We're trying to control value, whether one person is valued over another. I mean, the list goes on and on. In all of these situations, we could talk about finances again. We could talk about circumstances. Whatever it is, is that, that kind of hot button for you related to worry? Each of those things becomes something we seek to control. Because then we're the ones that get to dictate what happens. And then we get fulfilled in the area that we seek. It's this vicious cycle, really. So maybe one of the questions to talk about in group is this. What is it that you're seeking to control? What is it that you're working hard to control? Because if you look at what you're working hard to control, you'll find out what it is you're seeking. Right? If I start looking at my life and I start trying to figure out what are the things that I'm looking to control, looking to, to be able to decide and be the determiner of my fate in those areas, and that will directly link you to the areas in my life that I'm seeking something. So wrestling as a group, what is it that you're seeking? What is it that you wish to have control over? The second idea under this section of motive is that uh, unbelief is another root cause of worry. Unbelief. There's a statement that says, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. Really, what this guy is getting at is that worry is, about, is, is practical atheism. It's us pretending as if there's a God, and yet worrying as if there isn't that he doesn't exist, that we have to be the one that kind of steps up to the plate. Because he isn't. Or he might not. See, I think that the root of this unbelief is a kind of an undercurrent. That God is either unable to provide. I think there are times, there I've been challenged with, many times where I consider God unable to provide for something. Now, if you were to ask me that question, like, Russ, really, do you think that he couldn't provide it? Cognitively, I would say, oh, man, he can provide everything, right? 
And yet I live in the reality that he's got a pretty short arm, that he can't quite reach down and provide exactly what's needed. Or he's not interested enough. That he could provide it if he wanted, but he's just not interested enough in the state that I'm in or the situation at large, or he doesn't care for the things that I care for. God would provide for this if he realized how important it really was. Or that he's just unaware of what I really need. That he is a God that is so far removed from reality that he has no idea what Russ Davis in 2011 needs at this moment. And so there's this undercurrent of unbelief that leads to worry. And I think, I'll just speak for myself for a moment, that when I find myself in this place where I begin not to trust, not to believe, begin to to doubt or question whether God is all that He says He is, what I do is I jump into His role. And I figure I'll just manage the universe for Him. Right? So I try to jump into that place and I go, well, my life should really look like this, I think, so I'll try to make sure that I arrange everything and control everything the way that it's supposed to so that life turns out the way that it was intended for me. Or I figure I'm the one with the better plans. I mean, God's got great plans. He even talks in the Old Testament like, I've, I've got good plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And I just think, well, but I've got great plans. You've got good plans, but I've got better plans. And so I begin to, con- again, try to allow my unbelief to control the circumstances. I think the biggest way that, that I see this in my life is I live for making plan B's. Do you ever make plan B's? Sometimes C's, D's, E's even? Like if this happens, then I've got my back because I've planned out everything I need to to, to cover it. And so we dictate a lot of our life based on plan B. I do. Sometimes I dictate my giving based on my plan B. Because as long as I have enough in there that if something goes wrong, that I've got my back, then we're good. So I can give. But have you ever been challenged to like give your plan B? Have you ever been challenged to say, when you're evaluating your life, that it isn't the home that you live in that provides you the safety you think you need. That it isn't the relationship that you've allowed into your life that dictates whether there's chaos or not chaos. That so many times we try to structure and build this kind of castle around each of our lives to decide what gets in, who gets in, how it gets in, And we become the determiner. So this week, in groups, talk about it. Talk about this idea of control. Talk about this idea of unbelief. Talk about this idea of plan Bs. In which way do you see these things showing up in your life? Which then takes us to our third word, which is perspective. We started with this idea that perspective changes the way we see the world. That as we look at something, that it alters our viewpoint, our angle. I'm convinced that what Jesus does in this passage is He tries to address or answer the question, what we're seeking, 
in seeking first the kingdom. How do we do that? How do we seek first the kingdom? I think it's all about perspective, and it's about perspective of God. And so Jesus points out two things in the text that I think uh, really are challenging. The first one is this idea of how we see God. How we see God. Okay, this, this is going to be two sides of the same coin, but the first one that Jesus addresses is how we see God. He starts describing in the text different things that God is doing. First of all, He clothes the grass. He's providing the needs. He's, he's displaying interest in the things that are here one day and in the next day are kindling, or in the fire, as it says. He's interested in the, the things that you overlook and step on when you're hiking. He's interested in the least of the least. And he's saying, I'm providing for them, I'm caring for them, I'm dressing them, I'm arraying them in splendor. And then it also describes that he feeds the birds. That he takes care through all seasons that they have the right food, that they have the right shelter, that they have what it is they need for life. And he sustains their life. He cares for them. He's attentive to them. And in each of these, he's saying, listen, this is who I am. This is who I've always been. This is what I'm about. And the, and the, the key phrase for me is this. If you look at it again. Verse 31. It says, The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows. That phrase right there, your heavenly Father knows speaks a couple things. One, it speaks this idea, the word your, is implying that you also have a relationship with God. That it's, He's a relational God. That He's your God. He's not just my God. He's not just your neighbor's God. He's not just someone down the street that you know that's passionate about Him. He's also your God. And this God is relational. That there's a relationship between you and Him. That it's a developing, dynamic relationship. And what's interesting is anytime there's a relationship with someone, there's always a past, a present, and a future. And what Jesus is communicating, I believe, in this is, listen, because you have this relationship, allow your past to inform your future. Allow your past relationship with God to inform your future relationship with God. So the question would be, when is it that God did not follow through on his end of the bargain? When is it that God dropped the ball? When is it that God didn't provide what it is he said he would provide, and then based on that information, live into the future? And if your answer is, he's never let me down, he's never done wrong, he's always been for me and for my good, then that should inform the future and the way you live. Minus anxiety. Because our perspective of who God is and how we see God should change whether or not we have anxiety. The second thing that it says in there is your heavenly Father knows. He knows. What that means is He's aware. He's attentive. He's concerned. He's watching. He's involved. I mean, if He's stewarding the birds along the way, if he's showing attention to the minutest of details, 
He is caring and loving and watching and knowing you. Our perspective of how we see God dramatically changes our worry. The second one is how God sees us. Same coin, other side, how God sees us. He says this in the text, Consider the lilies of the field which are here today and gone tomorrow. In the message version it says this, let me read it to you. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? See, God, he cares for the wildflowers that aren't even seen. How much more does he care for men and women created in his image and likeness? He looks on you and sees a reflection of himself. This is exactly how I intended to create them. This is, they have inherent worth and value because of me. What's interesting is, um, not only in this passage, but in others, it talks about this idea that there's two sparrows, and God provides and cares for the sparrow. Sparrow, really, when you consider the Old Testament um, sacri- sacrifices, a dove would be like the cream of the crop bird to, you know, to sacrifice before God. The purest dove, the most holy bird. This would be so awesome if I could sacrifice that, but if I couldn't, because I couldn't financially provide it. You work your way through all of the birds, you get down to the very bottom bird, the sparrow. They're like, here's two for a penny. These birds come, you know, a dime a dozen. Here you go. Here's your sparrows. Bring those and sacrifice those. And what Jesus is saying is, if the most minute sacrifice to me, I care about, and I look over and watch and attend to, how much more you would I clothe and feed and provide and care for? So Jesus is speaking to this idea of worth or value. In fact, last night I was at the Cup of Cool Water banquet. And it was so interesting to hear testimony after testimony of children who lived on the streets sharing how God changed their life. And every single one of them described this. Before knowing Jesus, I felt I had no worth. I had nothing to offer the world. People viewed me as always unsuccessful, always on the fringes, kind of the riffraff off to the side. The only thing that I could do is really get in people's way. And then I realized the worth and the value that I have intrinsically in me. That God looks and He sees, especially as I came to know Him, He sees Jesus. He sees a pure and holy individual because of the blood of Christ. That reality, they said, changed them. They were never the same because of that. And it's the same thing that he's communicating to us. It's interesting. He he says in 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on me. Why? You know the rest of the phrase? Because he cares for you. The motivation for us casting the anxiety is this deep love, this deep concern, this deep care. So when we change our perspective, when we renew our perspective of who God is, how we see Him and how He sees us, really it demonstrates what Jesus is teaching, that is this. Faith 
and worry are incompatible. It can't happen. You cannot worry and say you have faith. And you cannot have faith, complete faith, in who He is and what He's done, and at the same time, worry. Impossible. This morning, what we want to do for the rest of our time is kind of linger in the reality of of who He is. And so, we're going to take a little bit more of an extended time, and I'm going to ask that in the first few minutes that the band is up here, that what you do is instead of trying to do something, that you kind of do nothing. That you just maybe pray, you just kind of listen, and maybe they sing a song and you don't interact with the song at all, but you just allow the words to, to kind of seep in. And at some point during the next three or four songs, feel free to take communion if you feel led. Again, there's no pressure at any time to take it, but if, if you want to, head to one of the tables in the corner in the back and just spend some time communicating again this knowledge of who God is. I would encourage you to do so. Because the reason we seek, the reason we want control, the reason we have unbelief, the reason worry penetrates our life, I believe, is because of a misperception, a need for a change of perspective in the awesomeness, holiness, and care of who God is. Let's pray.